We are going to jump back into the book of James today, so open your Bibles to James chapter 1. And we're going to again be looking at this first section of James where he's addressing the topic of trials. And the theme of the book of James, as you recall, is genuine faith on display. Genuine faith on display, and at first he's going to show how genuine faith considers trials as joy. So what I want to do first this morning is walk us through, starting from verse 2, up to our passage today, just to remind us of what James has been telling us here, and I think that helps set the context for our verses this morning as well. So James starts in verses 2 to 4, reminds us we need to be thinking rightly regarding trials. And he writes this, look along in in your Bibles. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what we're reminded here in these first verses of this section is that the battle that we're fighting is a battle of our thinking. He uses the word consider here. And that's a word that's talking about our thinking on things. And we must consider or think on trials as joyful. And to think of them in this way is not natural. That's not as humans. We naturally think of trials as a joyful thing. And that's why we're given a command. Start thinking this way. This is how we must think about them. And we can Think about them as joyful because we know something, he says, knowing, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And ultimately, that will result in spiritual maturity. So this initial command, which will drive this whole section of knowing, uh, considering it joy and knowing this, is absolutely essential. But James knows sometimes in trials we struggle with that. We struggle with our thinking, and so he goes on in this next section to encourage us to pray expectantly during trials, writing, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And as we saw in this passage, each one of us needs wisdom. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, and the, the way that's phrased there in the Greek is that you do. We all lack wisdom, and we need to turn to God for that wisdom, because he is the one that can provide it. And so seeking the Lord for this wisdom that each one of us must be doing must be done with a heart towards obedience. And he talks about that for a while here, that it can't be seeking the Lord in in wisdom, uh, for wisdom, a, a phony faith that says, well, God, just tell me what's going on, but not with a heart for obedience. And so he points out that the one who asked must ask in faith and not doubting and must come to a God who wants to give wisdom, and he wants to give generously to us, but we must come in faith to him. 
And that's what the perspective that we must have. Now, even with that genuine faith and coming to the Lord for wisdom, trials are difficult, right? Trials can be very hard, especially trials that seem to envelop your whole life. And one of those trials, and he wants to talk specifically about one, is the trials of financial hardship. And he gives specific commands here of how do you face this trial, financial hardship, but really any trial, this same instruction holds, and that's to maintain the right perspective during trials. We saw that in verses 9 to 12, that we have to have the right perspective. And again, we're looking at our thinking. How do we think about them? And the perspective he talks about here, uh, we see in verses 9 to 12, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So in these verses, verses 9 to 12 here, we see as a believer we must discipline our minds to have the right perspective on what is really important, spiritual blessings. That's what the poor man should focus on, and every one of us are spiritual blessings. And secondly, on the temporary nature of this life and our eternal rewards in heaven. We have to have that perspective of what's important and what lasts. And so James reminds us that in verses 9 to 12 here, that things of this earth will quickly pass away, but for those who are faithful, who endure, we receive the crown of life, eternal life from the Lord. So this is the way we must think, but sometimes in failing to think this way, some fail and give in to sin. And in doing so, many like to blame God or they resort to blaming God in this. And this is what we saw last time. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We were warned in this passage not to blame God or really anyone else for our sin. If we fail to respond to trials rightly and we give in to sin, it's because of our own personal lust. It's because in our hearts we have desired after something instead of faithfully obeying God. And so we see here that that is the wrong place to look when we're facing trials, um, when we're facing blaming God for the temptation to evil. And he gave in that passage a couple reasons why we shouldn't. He said, number one, it's not in God's nature to tempt evil. He's a holy God. And secondly, it's wrong to blame God because it's, it's coming from you. But he wants to go even further in our next section here. In verses 16 to 18, now we're getting to the section we're talking about today. And he concludes the section on trials by again warning against wrong thinking 
and showing why it's so foolish to blame God. So our passage this morning, verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. So here in this passage, just three verses long, we're going to have three points. And in these three points, these three verses, there's only one command given. Just one command, and then it's fleshed out a little bit. But the one command is in the first verse here, and we must not skip over it. And our first point here is beware of wrong thinking. Beware of wrong thinking, James says. And that's in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, it's such a short verse. This is an easy one to skip over, isn't it? Okay, don't be deceived. All right, about what? Let's go on. Let's move forward. But we must not do that. This is very important. And I'll show you why for a couple reasons. First, he says, my beloved brethren. He makes the point here of calling him his beloved brethren. Now, this is the first time James has done this in the book. He's called them brethren, and he will continue to use the term brethren throughout, but adding beloved to it. He does that here and then two more times in 119 and 25. And he does this and adds this additional expression, beloved, because he has a deep concern about something. He really wants to reach out to them at this point, let them know he loves them as he gives them a harsh warning. So we should take special note here. He's calling them beloved brethren for a reason here. What is his deep concern? Why does James want to use this? Well, the warning that's given is do not be deceived. To be deceived, to be led astray or caused to wander. And again, the only imperative in the verse, and it's a passive. He's not saying don't lead other people astray. Certainly, we shouldn't do that. But he's saying don't be led astray. Don't let your mind wander off into wrong thinking. And so what we see here, and what, if we've been paying attention from verse 2 on, there's again a focus on our thinking. Whether it was the verb for consider, or knowing, or talking about wisdom, our thinking is what is key when it comes to facing trials. People will, each one of you will face trials. I wish we could say that here's some tips and tricks to stay out of trials in your life. This way you won't have any hardship, no pain in your life. That's what prosperity gospels will want to tell you, the preachers. They'll say this is, you just give more to God and you'll avoid trials in your life. You won't have difficulties. But that's not the message of Scripture. In fact, when it says in verse 2, consider it all joy when you face various trials. There's a when, not an if. This is going to happen. So the key is not to try and avoid all hardship in life. The key is to think rightly through the hardship. How do you think rightly when your health goes south? When you lose your job? When your marriage is struggling? When a child 
uh, walks away from the family. How do you keep your thinking right in that? And that is the key, is right thinking. And so James is deeply concerned in this passage about the danger of wrong thinking. And this isn't unique to James. We see this throughout the New Testament, how important our thinking is and how we have to think rightly uh, in all things, particularly during trials. It's the battleground for the Christian life. This is where the war is won, is between your ears. You have to get your thinking right if you want your decisions, if you want your attitudes, if you want your actions to be right, it starts getting your thinking right. We see this in... In places like in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, when we're given the command to love the Lord our God, it includes our heart, our soul, and our mind. Our mind must be included in that. In Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of the mind is what has to happen for that transformation to be happening in our life. And we're again reminded in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Get your mind there. This is just a small sampling of verses talking about how important our thinking is. We could pull out a lot more from the New Testament. The point is clear again and again. Our thinking has to be right. And I praise God, even looking out here, I know some of the trials some of you have gone through. And that you have fought to have right thinking in them. And and because of that, you can go through the trial with joy. And because of that, you can respond rightly and honoring to the Lord. In considering this, I um, picked up a book I had read years past. I think it's a good one. Um, it's called book called Right Thinking in a World Gone Wrong. It was written by a number of pastors here at our church. Uh, one chapter, um, speaking of this issue of right thinking and trials, uh, was written by Rick Holland. And I appreciated uh, what he had to say in three questions. He broke it down into three questions that we should be asking ourselves as we go through a difficulty. And I think these are good to think through even as we consider our passage today. And the first question is this. Ask yourself, what do I feel? It's helpful for us to pause when something bad comes in our life and say, what am I feeling right now? Perhaps it's anger or fear. Perhaps it's a sense of sadness. Maybe embarrassment maybe jealousy, maybe a sense of loneliness. We will have these kinds of emotions. But don't just emote. Don't just have the feeling. Think about the feeling. Okay, this is my natural response. This is how I'm feeling. So think through, okay, what do I feel? But don't stop there. Don't stop just on what do I feel. Secondly, what do I think? What do I think? How do I start evaluating things? And at this point, we can go two different directions. We can go the direction of, okay, my thinking is going to be 
totally based on how I feel or my thinking is going to be based on what I believe. And there you'll have to make an important choice between those two. What are you going to base your thinking on? How you feel or what you believe? And our emotions are a great gift of God. And I don't want to come across saying our emotions are not important. They're they're a wonderful thing that God has given us to come alongside our thinking, but they're a horrible leader. They are not a good judge on deciding on what's right and wrong and on what you should do. Do not base your decisions on how you feel. Base them on what you believe and let your emotions follow. Our feelings may tell us to respond with anger if we don't get our way. Our feelings may tell us to respond in fear when we don't know what's going to happen. Our feelings may may tell us to despair and become self-focused when hardships come into our life. And our feelings may tell us to justify ourselves and blame someone else but ourselves, perhaps blame God or someone. Feelings are not a good judge in deciding what to do. So we can't stop just at, what do I feel? But we need to go to, what do I think as well? But the third question is also key, what do I believe? You must ask this question of yourself as well, and this will inform your thinking. Focus your mind on what do you believe, and you better be looking at what is truth. What is truth? You should be certainly believing on what is true. And that is how you direct your thinking, reminding yourself of what is true. And what is true, we find, of course, in God's Word. What is true about God and what is true about what He has done. And if we fail to discipline our minds and to go to the step of asking ourselves, okay, what do I believe? What truth am I holding on to? We will default to responding on emotions instead. And you're going to go down a path that will end in sin. And you won't be happy with the consequences of that. So these are three questions to think through. And this is, I believe, why James is giving such a warning here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's saying, think rightly. Think rightly. Put truth in your mind so that you will handle trials correctly. And what he will do now is, after he warns them, saying, beware of wrong thinking, now he's going to provide some truth. And okay, let me give some truth that I need to remind you of so that you do make the right decisions, so that you do think right. So after, number one, beware of wrong thinking, number two, be aware of God's attributes. This is one of the things one of the areas where we have to fill our minds so that we do think rightly in who God is. Verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So here we see one or one of the attributes to start with, and then we'll see a second one as well. But these are just two of the many attributes of God that help direct us and help in our thinking. 
So this verse, as we see, we just he pointed out why we cannot blame God. He's told us why already that because God's holy and the fault is all your own, but now he's going to give them two other attributes of God that would prevent us from ever blaming God. And one of them, that his goodness is infinite. So to contrast that notion that God would tempt evil, we might expect James to say, God does not tempt evil, God gives good gifts. And he does say that, but he says a whole lot more than that here. So we need to look carefully at this. In fact, in the first part here, he says it in two different ways when he talks about the gifts that God gives. He first says, every good thing given. Every good thing given. So in the, the word here for the, the gift or the thing given is, has a suffix of action, and it points to the act of giving itself. So he's not just talking about the gift, but the actual act of giving. James is saying the giving that God does is good. The giving in and of itself is a good thing. And then he follows it up with every perfect gift. And that has a suffix of result in it. So the point is to the gift itself. So we have kind of a double expression, what James is saying. It's the giving of the gift and the gift itself by God is a good thing. Well, first he says good, and then he says perfect. And the idea of perfect there means complete, lacking in nothing. It's a, it's a gift, all that a gift should be. That's how good God is. He's good in his giving, and he's good in the gift. Now, we in our giving uh, aren't always, uh, meet, don't, we don't always meet that standard. And uh, I can think of a time, and I'm going to pick on my son here. He doesn't know this. Um, he, you know, kids when they're young, very young, love to give gifts to their parents or, and he had a gift idea in mind for his mom. And it was this Hot Wheels little truck. It's like a tractor trailer truck and a car in back, kind of a cool little Hot Wheels thing. And uh, he thought this is going to be the great gift for mom. And, uh, I believe the, the act of giving his heart was in the right place. He really thought, yeah, my mom's going to love this. <laughs> Surprise of all surprises. That wasn't her favorite gift of all time. Uh, she loved it, obviously, because of the heart, because my son thought it was fantastic in giving it to her. But it wasn't the perfect gift. Uh, it was the good giving, but not the perfect gift in that case. Uh, we've um, probably had other times where it's been a good gift and not good giving, but... But in this case, uh, we sometimes fail to give perfect gifts, don't we? But God does not. God doesn't fail in giving perfect gifts. His giving of them and the gift itself is perfect. And remember what we're talking about in this first chapter of James. It's not talking about when blessings come into your life, is it? It's talking about when trials come into your life. Every good giving of a trial And every perfect gift of a trial displays the goodness of God. Now that's where it gets a little tricky, doesn't it? It's easy to say, yeah, when good things come into my life, praise God, that's a good thing. When trials come into our life, we need to have that same response. Because we need to see them ultimately as God using that toward our good and his glory. But if we see it just in the difficulty and how it makes us feel 
well, then we'll respond wrongly. But if we remind ourselves of this truth, God is good. And this giving of this trial and this trial itself is a good thing given to me by God. And it's going, God's going to use it in my life. That changes what we believe and then how we think, which will change what we do and affects our will. So it says here, it's pointing out the goodness of God. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. But I want you to notice as well, it doesn't just say God gives, has good giving and perfect gifts, but every good thing and every perfect gift is from above. So what this is saying then is that there isn't anything good given outside of it first coming from God's hand. That everything ultimately that we have that is good is from God. And certainly this should cause us to be grateful for everything, shouldn't it? Anything that we have, we need to give thanks to God for. Any, any good thing, including trials, which ultimately are a good thing in how God uses them, are something to praise God for. So what we are looking at here is the, the goodness of God. That is an attribute of God, that he is perfectly good. We can say he is absolute good, the highest good, intrinsically good, perfectly good, comprehensively good, and the source of all good. That's the goodness of God. There, good is, by definition, something that God does. There is no good apart from him. And this is a great comfort to us. We must always hold on to that reality and that truth. Charles Spurgeon said this, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up the more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord because He is good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless Him that he is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questionable, this is absolutely certain, that Jehovah is good. And that's one of the things, one of the truths that we can come to doubt in the midst of a trial, can't we? God is good. No matter how difficult that thing is that you're going through, no matter how painful, physically, emotionally, relationally, God is still good in the midst of that. And we always need to run to that truth. The goodness of God. But that's not the only attribute we find here. He also reminds us that God's immutability is permanent. Now, I know saying immutability is permanent is a little bit redundant. But, I, you know, we said goodness is infinite, so I wanted it to uh, line up, be parallel. <laughs> but it's a little bit redundant. Mutability that God does not change is permanent. Every good gift is from above. And so we know that refers to God. It's coming from God. It says, and it comes down then from the Father of lights. The Father of lights, an interesting expression. We don't see that in a lot of places. Uh, the Father of Lights, but it is a reference to God. 
The word father there is not talking about literal birth, but the creator. That God is the creator of lights. He has created the sun, the moon, and the stars that we enjoy. In fact, it was the very first day God said, let there be light. God is the creator of light and the lights in the heavens as well. So why does James use this unique phrase and not just say, coming down from God? Why does he say from the Father of lights? Well, we see the reason why in the second part of the verse, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And variation and shifting shadow usually refers to the the changing nature of light that we have with the sun and moon and stars. We all know the different light created by sunrise and sunset and the shadow that changes throughout the day. And there is much variation in lights. Even the moon itself waxes and wanes. There is change constantly with light, perpetual change with the light we experience on earth. So James is pointing here saying, the father of lights, and we know those things change, but God does not. With God, there's no variation or shifting shadow. The lights that we know in this world we know it can change, but, but God does not, and God will be the same. And this points to the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Doesn't, God doesn't mutate, doesn't change. He doesn't get better, and he doesn't get worse. If we would ever say that God improved, then he must not have been perfect previously. If he could get worse then there'd be some degradation of the perfection of God. But God is perfect, and he is always perfect. In the book, The Biblical Doctrine, written by uh, Mayhew and MacArthur, the immutability of God is defined as his perfect unchangeability in his essence, character, purpose, and promises. And we certainly see in this verse a defense of that truth of that attribute of God, but we see it elsewhere in Scripture as well. In Psalm 102, it says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And God himself says in Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God does not change. And that is an attribute we can rejoice in. That God does not change. The promises he made, he will continue to keep. He will never be less holy tomorrow than he is today. God is perfect and will stay perfect. And what the point is in this passage particularly is the goodness of God will not change. we got to understand that attribute of God's goodness together with His immutability. The goodness of God never goes away. If He is doing something today, it is good. If He does it ten years from now, it is good we can rejoice and have that confidence when we're facing trials that God's goodness does not change. 
A.W. Tozer, speaking on the immutability of God, says this in the knowledge of the holy. Divine goodness, as one of God's attributes, is self-caused, infinite, perfect, and eternal. Since God is immutable, he never varies in the intensity of his loving kindness. He has never been kinder than he is now, nor will he ever be less kind. He's no respecter of persons, but makes his sun to shine on the evil as well as on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. The cause of his goodness is in himself. The recipients of his goodness are all his beneficiaries without merit and without recompense. God's goodness does not change, and it's, that's because it's not based on how good you are or how much you've deserved it. God's goodness is in perfect harmony as well with his mercy and his grace. If it was dependent on us that God would be good to us, then it may change. Because we don't deserve goodness, do we? At least many times we don't. But God's goodness is not based on that. It's based on his own character. And because his character does not change, he remains a good God. And this, again, a truth we must remind ourselves of during trials. We may, in our feelings, want to cry out, life isn't fair. God is not fair to me. But remind yourself, what do I believe about God? Do I believe he's good? Do I believe he's unchangeably good? And then how should I act because of that? That's what we need to draw ourselves back to, is the character of God. We need to be aware of God's attributes and trials. But then a final thing we see in verse 18, not only is that truth of God's attributes something we need to bring to mind, but we need to be aware of God's actions as well. What has God done as well? In verse 18, it says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And we see here God's unchanging goodness in our salvation. We see God's goodness and we rejoice in God's goodness with many things. With the rain that falls, with beautiful mountains, uh, with the opportunity to go fishing or play disc golf or to eat brownies with ice cream and hot fudge. All wonderful examples of God's goodness. But nothing is as good of an example of his goodness as our salvation. That by far is the perfect example of God's goodness. And that's what this verse points to. It says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In the exercise of his will, it actually translates a verb that stands in the very beginning of the sentence here. For emphasis, it starts off and it says, God chose. He chose to do this. Translated here in the exercise of his will, but it could just say he decided. This is what God has decided to do, and he wants to emphasize this. And what did God decide to do? To bring us forth, which means to give birth or bring forth. He brought us forth. And it's, it's the same verb that's used in verse 15 when it's talking about sin brings forth death. 
Boy, this is a whole different type of bringing forth here, though. It's not sin bring forth death, but death, but God bringing us forth to new life. And how did he do this? By the word of truth. And here we're speaking of the gospel. This is the word of truth. Colossians 1.5 equates the word of truth with the gospel, as does Ephesians 1.13. The message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Again, in verse 21, talking about the word is the gospel. But the point that James is making here, he wants to say, okay, God's a good God, an immutably, unchangeably good God. And let me show you how you know this. He chose to bring you to new life by the word of the gospel. God did this. He accomplished this. And again, by emphasizing here, and the, the word that's used is saying, this is an act of God, your salvation. It wasn't your choice. He chose, he decided, he gave birth to us by the word of truth. And we see clearly here that salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of man. It's not us that earned our way to salvation. A lot of times the book of James, it gets a, it gets a bad reputation, right? It's like, wait a minute, James talks so much about works. Is this the works one different from the gospel elsewhere that is you know, by faith alone? No, James, we see in this verse here, he says salvation is a work of God. Now, he will emphasize that true faith, genuine faith, will result in works. Works are always the byproduct of true faith. But here in speaking of how we are made new, how we become saved, very clearly, he decided to give us birth by the word of truth. And we see this truth elsewhere in Scripture, Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 8.29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God does the work of regeneration. God saves you. Now, is it apart from the gospel? No, it's by the gospel, by the word of truth. It's not that the gospel is unimportant or that us sharing the gospel is not important. That's God's means in how people get saved. But we must not think that we've done it ourselves or that anyone can earn their salvation. James, because he writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying the same thing that the other writers of the New Testament are saying, that faith is the key to salvation and it's God who gives us that faith. He decided to bring us to new life by the word of the gospel. And the point, again, is what a good God, that he would do that. If salvation was in any part our own, then it's not the goodness of God so much. It's that, well, that's what I decided, and I kind of you know, had a part in this. But the goodness of God is so much on display, it's because he's the one who does it. That's his whole point, is God is the one who brought salvation. It's his goodness. So it only makes sense when we understand that salvation is the work of God. And because it's 
his work, it's a display of his goodness. Finally, in verse 18, we see God's unchanging goodness in God's ongoing salvation. It says, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God has done this saving work in our hearts, not to end with us, but to continue to bring more to himself. Jewish Christians were receiving this, how much they understood that Gentiles, such as myself and most of you, would be saved, I don't know. Now the word here even for creatures um, can be translated as creation, and it may be speaking as well to what Romans 8 talks about, about all things being made new, and all creation groaning right now, waiting to be made new. James may be referring to that, but certainly we know it's incl- he's, his emphasis is God's goodness and salvation. And certainly the more that God has saved is a clear demonstration of the goodness of God. And he does that through the gospel. So believer, when you get in that trial, when hardship comes and you doubt and you your emotions fight against it and say this isn't fair when you want to blame God or blame someone else when you want to disobey think back to the gospel remind yourself of truth what do I believe what do I believe about God's saving work in my life do I believe God's good do I believe that God has done this And will the God who saved me by sending his son to the cross now abandon me by giving me this trial? That does not make sense. So you can't stop with how do I feel? What do I think? But God asks, what do you believe? And if you don't know Christ, and you say, well, I, I don't know what this means. Go back to the gospel. Go back to thinking what Christ has done. Don't leave here today without talking to someone, without thinking through what is the gospel. Help me understand the gospel. Gospel is simply that God is a holy, perfect God and wants communion with us, but each one of us has failed to follow him as we should, that we have sinned and rebelled against him. Every one of us in some way, has chosen our own selfishness rather than following him. And therefore cannot have communion with God, but deserves God's wrath, his judgment for eternity. But God provided a way through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that all of us failed to do and paid the penalty for our sin, judgment we should have, paid for it on the cross, and his perfect life could be applied to your life if your faith is in him. And if you repent of your sin and follow him, you can enjoy that goodness of God. You can grasp hold of that gospel. You can be changed and live life always knowing that goodness of God. And if you don't know Christ, that's the gospel. And I urge you, don't go through another day without seeking the Lord and His salvation through the gospel.
So that's certainly what many in here need to do. Uh, first fruits, we talked about that. Let me just quickly an application. Three points of application for us. First, win the battle of your mind and your thinking. Think rightly. Ask not only how do I feel or what do I think, but ask what do I believe? Go back to truth about what you believe. Do you believe in God's unchanging goodness? Do you believe that He saved you through the Gospel? Do you believe in a, that your spiritual blessings are more important than temporary pain or hardship? Do you believe that you will have eternal life one day and anything here is going to fade? Win the battle of the mind by speaking truth to yourself. Stop listening to your emotions as much as speaking truth to your emotions, speaking truth to yourself, reminding yourself what is true. And in that way, you will have endurance in trials. Secondly, if you're saved, regularly praise God for his goodness in your life. Praise God that he has saved you, all owing to his mercy and grace. If you do that, you will be reminded of his goodness and face trials rightly. And then finally, as I said, if you're uncertain about your salvation, please speak to someone today. May this be the day of your salvation because going through trials without knowing Christ, there is no hope. God isn't using them in your life to bring you to spiritual maturity. And you will face God's punishment one day. So if you don't know him, I beg that you do Make yourself right before the Lord today and talk to someone today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you for your goodness in our life. Every good and perfect thing comes from you. And so we have every reason to praise. Lord, every reason to thank you. Lord, I... Thank you for each person in here and just knowing, Lord, the difficulties of many and what they're going through and and everyone will face difficulty at some point. Lord, I pray that they would win the battle of their mind by reminding themselves of truth and the truth of who you are. God, you are worthy to be trusted. You are a good, good God. May we never doubt that. And so, Father, I pray that, um, Lord, we would think on that truth, and God, it would guide and direct us. We praise you and thank you for your goodness. In the name of Christ, amen.